I would invite you now to take your Bible and go to Hebrews chapter 10 as we continue our series through the book of Hebrews. For those of you who are tuning in with us, I want to welcome you. Thanks for connecting with us on this Lord's Day. My name is Ian. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Community Church, and it's my honor and privilege to do the regular preaching and teaching of God's Word. And so I would invite us all now at this time to direct our attention to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. We've been in this section, this turning point in this great letter um, for four weeks now, and we will conclude our meditation exposition of this section, Lord willing, this morning. And so Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, let us hear the word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is God's word. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to his reading and preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And church, we desperately need more of the Holy Spirit. What we've been considering over the past several weeks are the foundational privileges and responsibilities that come to us as Christians on the basis of the new covenant promise. Blessings that come to us by grace, through faith, in the atoning death, glorious resurrection, and ongoing ministry of our highly exalted Jesus Christ. We are being urged in this section to take hold of these privileges and to fulfill these basic Christian responsibilities. We've been exhorted that since we have access to God's heavenly presence, let us draw near in worship and in surrender to service. We've been urged that since we have a faithful promise-keeping God, let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering. And, And since we have a mutual responsibility to persevere in the faith, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, encouraging one another to keep following Jesus to the end. These are the foundational privileges and responsibilities of the Christian life based on the new covenant blessing that comes to us by grace through faith in Jesus. In chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, in this section, the church is being exhorted to take hold of these privileges and to fulfill these responsibilities. Covenant community, we are being urged, exhorted to take hold of these privileges and to fulfill these responsibilities. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus, receive these verses. Receive this one single sentence as an exhortation to you to enjoy these privileges and to fulfill these responsibilities as one who has been redeemed by the precious blood 
and reigned over by our Supreme Lord. But as we return to the text this morning, we're going to notice that something is happening that's making it difficult for the original recipients of these exhortations to fulfill them. Some have developed a a bad habit. And the bad habit that is explained for us in this text is that some have developed the bad habit of neglecting to meet together. To use modern day language, they stopped going to church. And because they stopped going to church, they were in danger of not being the church. You see, as Christians, we, as Christians, we are the church and we go to church. It's not an either or statement. It is a both and reality. Historically, the church has been rightly identified as both the people and the place they gather. In the same way my wife and kids are my family, and our house on 41st Street is our home. Where we live, where we gather as a family, is inseparably connected to who we are as a family. So it wouldn't be inappropriate for someone to drive down 41st Street, point at our house, and say, look, the McConnells. Now, obviously, the brick and mortar is not our family, but that home represents where our family lives. So we speak of them together. Obviously, the house is not the family, just like the church is not the building. But there is an inseparable connection between the people of God and the place the people of God gather. The local church is the people who gather together in a place in a sacred space to experience worship, fellowship, and mission together in the name of Jesus. Sometimes in homes, in the early days of the Christian church in the first century, sometimes on mountainsides, in open fields, cramming in people's homes, sometimes in eventually buildings that were especially set apart for the purposes of the gathered church. Nonetheless, the church historically and biblically, has always been understood as both the people and the place where those people gather. That's why it's correct to say that we are the church and we go to church. Now, although I personally deeply celebrate the renewed accent on us being the church and the church not being the building. I mean, we've been told by government officials both on state and city levels as well as national level that the church can be reopened. Let's be honest, the church has never closed. Buildings close, but the people of God don't shut down, right? So we continue to be the people of God while we temporarily are displaced from the sacred spaces we love and long to gather. And so I'm grateful that there's been a a renewed exclamation point behind the church is the people. But let's be very careful that our renewed excitement about emphasizing that the church is the people and not the building, that we lose sight of the very important reality that the church gathers together. And in order to gather together, There needs to be spaces and places for the church to gather. So all that to say, it is true that we are the church and we go 
to church. So we are the church, and we go to church, and we invite seeking souls to come to church that they might engage with the head of the church, Jesus, who, who pronounces a special blessing when two or three are gathered in his name. So, so here is, all I have to say, here is the overall emphasis, the, the, the ultimate emphasis in the section that we've been working through for the past four weeks. The church cannot and will not enjoy the fullness of its new covenant blessings. The church cannot and will not faithfully participate in its new covenant responsibilities unless we meet together. The gathering of the church is a necessary experience for being the church. And furthermore, in the broader context of the letter of Hebrews, and what will follow in the next section, verses 26 to 39, is that regularly gathering with the church is essential for perseverance. Perseverance is one of the macro topics being addressed in this entire level, in this entire letter. Jesus is supreme. He is the best. He's better than everything the old covenant foreshadowed about him. That's the, that's the big, big idea of the book of Hebrews. But second to that is, we must persevere in believing that. We must persevere in holding on to that. It's not our profession of faith that ultimately matters. It is our perseverance in the faith that ultimately matters. And the book of Hebrews says, if you're going to persevere in the faith, you need the covenant community. You need the church to help you hang on to Jesus for dear life. So the ultimate danger in neglecting to meet together is that it contributes to a failure to persevere in the faith. New Testament scholar Dennis Johnson makes the following comment on that note. He says the warning about apostasy that follows, verses 26 through 39, implies that people who deliberately and persistently abandon the fellowship of Christian believers are in danger of abandoning the Lord himself. Not going to church is dangerous. Because the communion of the saints, that's lingo from one of the earliest Christian creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the, the communion of the saints is essential for perseverance. So in that respect, neglecting to meet together is a deadly habit. Skipping church, to use again, kind of crude lingo, skipping church is a deadly habit. Prioritizing the gathering of the church is essential for persevering in the faith. So the exhortation that sets the church up for obedience to all the other exhortations is to end their deadly habit of neglecting to meet together. And that's the big idea we want to consider this morning. In order to faithfully be the church, we must faithfully go to church. In other words, in order to enjoy the fullness of our privileges in Christ and to exercise faithfulness to our responsibilities in Christ, we must not develop the habit of neglecting the assembling of ourselves together. So we want to consider this big idea, this, this truth from this text 
in three parts. I want to talk about the action at the heart of this deadly habit. I want to talk about the attitude behind this deadly habit. And then finally, I want to talk about the answer to ending this deadly habit. First, the action. What's the action? Not meeting together, as is the habit of some. Some people who identified as followers of Jesus and participated in the life of this particular local church had gotten into the habit of not meeting together. So the question is, what exactly does that mean? What kind of meetings between Christians are in view here? Well, let's look at the words. The words meaning to meeting together in our English Bible are just one word in the original language. It's the word episynagoge, which literally means an assembly, coming together, gathering. It has at its root, you heard it, synagogue. Synagogue. Synagogue was at the center of the local Jewish life. It was the place where religious Jews would assemble for worship, for community, and for spiritual formation. It's where they worshiped, and it's where they taught their children to be worshipers. As the early Christian church was finding language to describe what they were doing when they came together in the name of Jesus to worship and to fellowship and to, and to, to grow as disciples, they used this word. They, they redeemed this word. They repurposed this word synagogue to describe their gathering, their coming together. This was already, term, this was terminology that was already in their usable vocabulary and they repurposed it for their gathered life together in Christ. Dennis Johnson quoted him a moment ago. Let me quote him again. He said the following. He said, the writer uses a term for their meeting that is parallel in sense to church and suggests a formal gathering of some kind. All that to say that the word used for meetings in this text was not the word that was used to describe a casual yet important interaction between two Christians, or, or to say the way that we would say it, getting together with a Christian friend over a cup of coffee to talk about the Bible. It's not that kind of meeting, although those meetings are important. This word meeting is talking about more of a formal, corporate assembly of a group of Christians. It's also a word that was used prophetically in between the writing of the Old and New Testament. It was used to describe the day when Israel would finally be regathered and brought together in the presence of God. It had eschatology in view, a, a future day when all God's people once again be gathered together in the very presence of God. This is why theologian Helmut Koster notes that the use of this word for the gathered church highlights, quote, how the assembly is the earthly counterpart to the heavenly congregation of God's people. The earthly counterpart to the heavenly congregation. In other words, the author of Hebrews sees meeting together as a foretaste of heaven on earth while we wait for the day when we are finally reunited with all of God's people in the presence of Christ forever. Here's the point. The point is meeting together was terminology used to describe the formal, organized gatherings of the local church for worship, fellowship, formation, and mission, all the while keeping their eye on that future day when the whole church, capital C, will be gathered together in the very presence of God 
forever and ever. These are the kinds of meetings that some of these professing Christians had gotten in the habit of neglecting. And because they were neglecting the regular gatherings of the church, they were failing to enjoy the privileges of drawing near in God's presence for worship and for preparation for service. And because they were not regularly gathering, they were not embracing their responsibility to help other Christians persevere in the faith. And on the flip side, not receiving the help they needed to continue to persevere in the faith. And the cumulative effect of this habit was deadly. Because we find out later in the book of Hebrews, it was those who departed from the gathered church who eventually departed from the Lord himself. That's the action. These professing Christians had fallen into the deadly habit of not meeting together for the formal gatherings of the church on earth that would be serve as a foretaste of that celestial gathering in the presence of God. Well, what, what contributed toward this action? What, what, what was the attitude in the heart? Because we, we do what we do because we, we want what we want, or we do what we do because we believe what we believe. We, we do what we do in our actions because of attitudes that are formed in the, on the deepest heart level. So what was going on in the hearts of these believers, these professing believers who had developed these bad habits of not meeting together with the church? Well, let's notice the attitude. And behind this deadly habit, we will see a bad attitude. And that bad attitude can be understood by understanding the word neglect. Not neglecting to meet together. The word neglect literally means deliberate abandonment. This is not accidental neglect. This is an oops, I forgot to go to church. This is a deliberate abandonment from gathering with the church. And combined with the word habit here in verse 25, it means a deliberate and persistent abandonment. So this isn't talking about occasionally being providentially hindered from gathering with the church. I mean, people got sick back then. Emergencies came up back then. I mean, even the old covenant provides space for emergencies when your ox falls into the ditch, right? Even then, people occasionally had to work when the church gathers. So this isn't talking about a heart attitude that says, I wish I could gather with the church, but I can't this Lord's Day. This is talking about a deliberate choice to turn away from something. Something that's important, yet abandoned. Sometimes this word neglect is translated to other places in the New Testament as forsake. For example, in Matthew 27 verse 46, this is the word that Christ used on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's also the word that was used by Paul to describe being deserted by his co-laborer Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10, where Paul writes, for Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me. What fueled this heart attitude that led to a forsaking, a deserting, a neglect of gathering with God's people? Well, the author doesn't tell us exactly what it was with these professing Christians, but he doesn't have to. 
what we know from the broader context of the book of Hebrews and what we'll read even in the next section is that Hebrews, these Hebrew Christians, were finding it increasingly difficult to gather publicly with God's people without experiencing persecution. It was becoming increasingly difficult to publicly identify with Christ. And then rather than going through all the texts that prove that, here's a quote that kind of summarizes what Hebrews talks about going forward. Michael Kelly notes, showing up and meeting together marked them as a community of believers. And when they were marked, they were targeted. Property was seized. Prison terms were handed out. Jobs were lost. And livelihoods were in jeopardy. To publicly identify with Jesus and his church led to losing other valuable things. So they developed this negligent attitude toward the public gatherings of the church because it had become increasingly uncomfortable to do so. Those who had developed the deadly habit of neglecting to gather with the church ultimately valued their possessions, their property, their jobs, their money, and their freedom more than their faith in Christ. They feared losing. They feared having things that were precious to them taken away. They feared losing those things more than remaining connected to the community that would help them hold on to what was most valuable, Christ. So these good things, possessions, property, jobs, livelihood, these good things had become the most essential things. And so when gathering with the church and identifying with Jesus put these good things in jeopardy, they valued holding fast to those good things more than holding fast to the confession of their hope. They weren't seeking first the kingdom of God and trusting that everything else that they needed would be added to them. We see this in contrast to others who continued to gather with the church. And we'll read later on in chapter 10 that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Why? Because they knew that they were citizens of a kingdom that would last forever. They would receive the public scrutiny. They would lose things that they valued and, and should have valued. They held those things loosely because they knew that there was coming a day where they would be in the presence of God and what ultimately mattered to them could never be taken away. The difference between those who continued to gather regularly and those who neglected to gather as a habit, what, what, what separated them were their values. What mattered most? So what's the answer for changing this attitude? What is the answer to turn from this deadly habit? Well, let's consider that finally, the answer. The answer is found, I believe, in the last five words of verse 25. See the day drawing near. These words direct our attention to what matters most and what will last forever. The day in verse 25 is shorthand for the day of the Lord. 
And time does not permit me in this single sermon to do a, a, a long and extended treatment of the day of the Lord. It's a topic that is taken up quite extensively by the prophets in the Old Testament and regularly referred to in relationship to the return of Christ in the New Testament. The day that's being referred to here by the writer of Hebrews is that highly anticipated day of Christ's return. And that day of Christ's return will be both a day of salvation and judgment. In salvation, Jesus will make all things new. And in judgment, Jesus will call to account both the living and the dead. Not just a day of renewal, a day of accountability for all. For all. Not just those who've rejected Christ, but even for those who have faithfully followed Christ. Paul says quite clearly in 2 Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is that day, that day of accounting, that day when all will stand before the Lord of light and have their lives exposed before the presence of God without anything to hide. And the author says that day is drawing near. Martin Luther said that there were only two days on his personal calendar. Today and that day. Today and that day. When, when that day is on your calendar, it will provoke you to consider living for what matters most. When you live each day in light of that day, you will realize that the time is drawing near for you to stand before the God of the universe and give an account for your life, for your days, for your hours. On that day, it will be revealed what kingdom did we value most? On that day, it will be revealed. Did we spend more time laying up treasures on earth where moth and dust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal? Or have we spent most of our time investing in treasures in heaven? On that day, it will be revealed what we've lived for on this earth. What did we deem most valuable? What did we invest in? On that day, church, we will give an account. One of the most humbling, one of the most humbling texts in all of Scripture for me as a pastor is what is to come in chapter 13. In reference to this day, it comes up a bunch in these next three chapters, that one day I will stand before Jesus and give not only an account for my life, I will give an account for the church. Drew will be there to help give an account for this church. Greg will be there to help give an account for this church. And so we are urged to respect our leaders as those who will give an account. You know what shakes us to the core as we seek to serve you and love you in Jesus' name is one day we will give an account to Christ on that day for how we've helped you and equipped you and led you to make much of Jesus. We will all stand before Christ on that day and give an account. Yes, covered by the blood of Jesus, all of our sins are forgiven. Yes, covered by the blood of Jesus, all of our shame is covered. 
Yes, covered by the blood of Jesus, all of our guilt will be removed. It won't be a day where it's decided whether we get in or we go down. But it will be a day where our lives are evaluated and we will enter into the joy of our master regardless. But it will be a day of accountability. We all must appear before Christ on that day. That, I believe in context, is the answer to ending the deadly habit of neglecting to meet together. We need what happens when we gather to be ready for that day. We need what happens when we come together, enjoying our privileges, embracing our responsibilities, in preparation for the day when we stand before Christ and give an account. That day keeps this day grounded in the good news of Christ. That day keeps this day rooted in our desire to obey the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That day keeps this day grounded in seeking the kingdom first. That day keeps this day oriented towards not building my kingdom and not living for my agenda, but living for the kingdom of King Jesus who lived and died and rose from the dead to make us his church. And what has he told his church? Don't neglect meeting together. We will give an account for how we value the assembling of ourselves together. The answer to ending this deadly habit what undoes the bad attitude of not valuing the, the communion of the saints is understanding that one day we'll all be gathered in the presence of God and we will individually give an account to Christ for how we spent our days down here. So in conclusion, have you been developing this deadly habit? For many American Christians, Skipping church doesn't seem to be a really big deal. Certainly not the kind of big deal it was to the writer of Hebrews in relationship to our responsibilities and privileges and perseverance of the faith. A few years back, a study reported that the average church member, not just attender, but the average church member only goes to their local church two Sundays a month. That means 26 out of 52 on average Sundays a year. The average church member gathers with their local church. That means for 26 out of 52 Sundays, the average church member deliberately chooses to neglect meeting together. This isn't talking about um, unique situations like sickness and certain employment scenarios, but generally skipping church has become all too common for the American Christian. And sadly, a new study released this month by the Barna Group, the Barna Group, a widely respected national polling group, shows that it has actually gotten worse during the pandemic. 
the church's engagement with their local church's virtual gatherings have not been as good as some of the initial analytics have shown. 48% of churchgoers say that they have not watched any church online in the last four weeks. Only 40% of churchgoers report watching their regular home church online. And 23% said that they streamed a different church either in place of their own or in addition to their own. So what's our problem? And I want to enter into this with you as well. I'm one of your pastors. It's kind of my job to be here, right? But let me be honest with you. Some days, especially on Sunday, sunny days, during the summer, my heart would love to be at the beach rather than gathering with the church. But I have no choice. I say that to say this. I'm with you. I think we all have a problem. I think we all have a problem. And it's the same problem that's being addressed in this text. We can develop this attitude and we can develop these, these unhelpful habits of neglecting together with the church when we value other things more than our confession of faith. When we value other things more than being a part of the people of God. When we value other things more, let's just say it, than Christ himself. What typically keeps us from gathering with the church? Is it not our valuing of possessions and property and jobs and money and freedom? Is it not we would rather be doing something that we believe is more satisfying than worshiping in the presence of Christ? Let's be honest. Let's be real. We must not fear losing out on things or, or, or more of things than remaining connected to the community that helps us persevere in the faith to the very end. Let us not forget, and I've never done a teaching yet while I've been here at Covenant on the Ten Commandments, but may we not forget the Ten Commandments still matter? We honor the Sabbath, and we may have particular ways of interpreting what it means for us to honor the Sabbath. Is it a day? Is it a principle? Here's the deal. God made it clear in creation and under the old covenant, you work this many days and you better rest. You need to rest because you're not God. You need to rest because I deserve to be worshiped. You need to rest because your identity is not primarily, primarily found in what you do. Your identity is primarily found in who you belong to. And so God wrote it in stone that every day isn't the same. And that certain days are special for God's people to come together and take hold of their new covenant privileges, access to the presence of God, to embrace their new covenant responsibilities, help one another persevere. And all the while, doing this to watch out for our own souls. Because both the scripture and church history makes it clear. Those who stray from the gathered church eventually stray from Christ. In order to faithfully be the church, my brothers and sisters, we must faithfully 
go to church. Let's make a big deal about the fact that the church is not the building, it's the people. Let's make a big deal about that. Let's, let's, not, let's not care about exactly where we meet, although I love where we meet here. Uh, but let, let's not make a big deal about particular places. But let's understand this. The church is not just the people. It's the people gathered. And in order for the people to gather, there must be a place. And I believe with all my heart that space becomes sacred when God's people fill it and they experience their access to the presence of God and declare with confidence, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You don't want to miss out on being in those spaces and places with those people who, who, who declare their allegiance to your Savior. What's the answer to changing our attitude and ending this deadly habit? We must see the day drawing near. That's another way of saying, get your eyes on Christ and his return. He's coming back. We will see him with our own eyes. And it will be a great day of rejoicing, a great day of renewal when our faith becomes sight. Church, we're going to see Jesus someday. And that day, according to this text, could be any day. It's drawing near. The book of Revelation, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's almost back. That day is drawing near. And what a wonderful day it will be. But let us not shirk away from this sobering reality. It will be a day of salvation, but it will also be a day of accountability. And what we do when we gather like this is preparation for standing before Christ on that day, making it to the end, and declaring that let come what may, what I valued more than anything was Jesus. So how do we end this deadly habit? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The things of earth that we choose to do, deliberately choose to do, places we deliberately choose to go, rather than assembling ourselves together with the people of God. When we look in the face of Jesus, those things, the beaches, the trips, the binging on Netflix, the sleeping in, the homework, the overtime, the extra money it will bring, all those things will grow strangely dim in the light of Christ's glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, we want to step back and once again just thank you for all we have in Christ. We are told in this text that since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and since our hearts have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus, we have all these privileges and we have all these responsibilities. And oh God, if we are to make much of Jesus and his great sacrifice, if we are to make much of your son Jesus and his lordship over our lives, then we must regularly assemble together and enjoy those privileges 
and embrace those responsibilities. Father, we thank you for your church, both the people and the places that we gather together in your son's name. Would you continue to use your church as the means through which we enjoy all that's ours in Christ? And would you especially use your church and her gatherings to help us persevere in the faith? For my brothers and sisters who hear a message like this and they feel a deep level of conviction. For those who have, who who find themselves identifying with those who say we go to our church half the times they gather. I do pray for conviction for those who who have that as their experience, but I do pray that that conviction would move them not to despair, not to condemnation, but to Christ. (laughs) But to Christ who holds himself out as better than anything we would choose to do, better than anywhere we would choose to go, rather than assembling and enjoying the communion of the saints. And so help us get our eyes on Jesus and give you the worship that you are so worthy of, all in preparation for that great and glorious day when we will see your son with our very eyes. And when we see him, we'll become like him. What a day that will be. Prepare us for that day together. In Jesus' name, amen.